podcast let me say this uh let, let me say this um was birthed out of my podcast um called um same kind different day <clears throat> and i kept finding myself saying well let me say this let me say this so i decided you know you need your own damn podcast so same podcast rules are going to apply as they always have um just letting you guys know that if you want to post comments or ask questions feel free to do it in the facebook stream i think they'll show up uh on my little setup here um, I want to give a big shout out to LGBTQ Detroit, uh, ran by Mr. Curtis Lipscomb and my good friend, Jaron Totten. Uh, we normally do this thing called Brother to Brother Lockdown on Thursday nights. And this uh, Thursday, they decided to let me have it. So all of them are going to be joining us as well. Uh, again, guys, thank you so much for all you do for the community. All right. So y'all came here to hear me talk about this. So I'm going to go ahead and get right down to it. Uh, I want to have a conversation about racism. I want to have this conversation with white people, uh, mainly because when black people talk about racism, uh, most white people just kind of like, oh, hey, everything is racist. And everything is racist because that's what this, how this country was built. And we'll talk about that <laughs> a little bit too. But yeah, everything is racist. Uh, it is what it is, folks. Um, but anyway, so um, I want to have a conversation with white people talking about racism. So I got three, four of my really, really good friends uh, to join me who are brave enough to take this on with me. So I'm going to bring them all onto the screen. Just give me one second here. And so we have um, Margaret Marston Smith, Mr. Joshua Burford, the Reverend Dr. David Barnhart Jr., and my friend Brian. Hey, how's it going, folks? Hey. So before we get started, um, starting with Margaret and working her around, just a little bit about, about yourself. And um, and as you talk about yourself, talk about how racism has played a part in your identity, because you guys are all different. So Margaret. Uh, my name is Margaret Marston. I was born and raised in the segregated South. My family prided itself on being quite liberal. Um, but I also got messages of better than, and I certainly from my culture in Long Beach, Mississippi, I got messages of way better than, <laughs> uh, and, um, my first recollection of thinking about race specifically, I was at a softball game and there were maybe five of us, 12 year old girls. And across the baseball field, I could see four black young men. They were maybe nine or 10. And I remember thinking at the time, wondering to myself, I wonder when the time will come when I won't think of them as black boys who are other than me, who are not like me. Um, and that kind of has propelled my life. I spoke out at a citizens council meeting when I was in high school and my mother was furious with me. <laughs> uh, and I've, um, I've made an effort to be aware. And in the, in recent years, I've become very aware of how racist I am and how I have embedded messages that I tell myself and I'm working very hard on that. So that's who I am. Hi, Josh. Hi, I'm Josh Burford, uh, he, him, his. I'm the director of outreach and lead archivist for the Invisible Histories Project. We are a three-state LGBT archiving and history project, collecting and preserving 
LGBT history. I've been thinking a lot about you asking this question because I feel like I grew up very waspy. And so my relationship to like racial otherness was always through this lens of how my family was doing it right, if that makes sense. But it was like a very white liberal basic level where, you know, we weren't using profanity or racial slurs and we had friends who were black. And so it was like, see how well we're doing. With this juxtaposition of the fact that my great grandfather, who I never knew, he had died before I was born, he was my grandmother described him as an Olympic level racist. Oh damn! Yeah, because he was like legit in the clan and like wasn't embarrassed about them. Wow! And so like it was this weird juxtaposition of like, look at this person who we're not like. And so there was never any conversation in my household growing up about like our culpability as white people in systems of white supremacy. Y'all didn't have a part in that because, you know, slavery was over by the time y'all got here. So you had nothing to do with that at all. And my my great grandmother thought she was like one 367 Cherokee or something. And so like we were basically people of color. And so like we had that we had that distant relationship to racism. Like, look how well we're being white about it over here. But no conversations in my household growing up about how we were benefiting from white supremacy, about how it was playing out in our own families. Right. So, yeah. Right. Dave. Yeah, I would say mine is is actually pretty similar to Josh's. I would say that uh, oh, Dave Barnhart also he him his. Um, uh, I would say my my history is actually similar to Josh's in that um, we were kind of in a bubble. Um, I went to uh, I went to a private school. Um, I think uh, there were thirty five people in my class, and I think we may have had um, two black people uh, in in our class. And so it was very, uh, very white area. I was in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, and I think really the first first um, close relationships I had to people who were not white were, was in college. Um, but th- even then it was like, well, I have black friends. I mean, that was kind of my, you know, that, that was the- Step on the back. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and it was interesting because, um, you know, my, my grandparents were educators. My grandmother, um, um, they came from Indiana, and uh, when Robert went through, the school superintendent called my grandfather and asked if my grandmother would go be a teacher at the black school, and um, and she had this had this memory. She was outraged that the superintendent would call her husband to ask what his wife would be willing to do. Um, but she she had this memory of of going because in in her. In her experience, it was it was supposed to be separate, but equal. And when she went and and was exposed to that, she it was it was kind of a, a revelation. And she she said she cried every day when she came home because it was a it was also a very stressful situation because she didn't understand why people didn't trust her. Right. You know, so it, I, and I did never really heard that story the same way until I don't know, probably ten years ago, and I was like, oh, that's what she was talking about. Um, anyway, so that's kind of my. Um, it's kind of my background. Brian, Dr. Welch, you got some fans on here, I see. Hey, Jake. Who? Jake Bates. Yeah, shout out to Dr. Oh, Welch. All my Birmingham worlds are colliding. <laughs> um, right, so I'm Bryn Welch. I teach philosophy at UAB. Um, I, my experience growing up was very similar to Josh's, so very, very waspy. Um, 
I think maybe the best way I know how to capture it is captured by Robin D'Angelo, right? So like I grew up in a segregated town and I never, I, I never, I mean, clearly I received messages of superiority, but they weren't explicit. But, but I also never received messages that there was anything sad or lost about my upbringing because it, because it was all white. So I was, I was never taught that there was something valuable missing from my, my upbringing. Um, my college sweetheart was black. Uh, he was from Ethiopia and, and Muslim. And so he it was, was black, black, black. that what? He was blacky black black. So the it, but it was but it was interesting because it was shortly after two thousand one, um, and so I I I witnessed discrimination that he experienced, but I felt like it was largely because his last name was Muhammad. Um, so I didn't I, I still didn't, I I still didn't have any kind of like gut reaction to racism, um, and then my. Um, my daughter, I have a, I have a daughter, Lizzie, uh, when Lizzie was born, um, her, I was there for her birth and I watched her birth mother and I be treated in fundamentally different ways by medical professionals who were more concerned that I was okay than that the woman birthing a child was okay. And like, I'm like chilling in sweatpants, sipping a latte. So I was fine. Um, and that was my, my real, like. I, I, I'm always reluctant to say, so this question, like, how are you raised in relation to race, right? The natural answer for me is like, oh, I wasn't, but I'm white. So of course I, of course I was, <laughs> just wasn't explicit. Um, and so that the, the birth of my daughter was, was my real, like, oh, now this is all day, every day. I did not know. <laughs> so, so it's been a steep, steep learning curve for seven years. Well, I, I want to thank you all for agreeing to do this again. I think that conversations about race are really, really important. And I think the biggest problem that we have right now, one is that people are willfully ignorant when it comes to race. The other part that I don't think that they really can conceptualize what racism really is because we spent, spent so many time trying to boil down racism to well, they don't like us because we're black. And that's prejudice or bias. Racism is a little bit more insidious than that to where not only do they not like us because we're black, but they can do stuff to hurt us or there are things that are built in this system to benefit them while simultaneously, you know, being adversarial to us. So, you know, and that, and that, those are some of, the, some of the things I want to talk about tonight. So we're going to jump right back right into this. Um, and we kind of answered the first question already, but why do white people have such a hard time seeing racism <laughs> like what 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 is it about seeing a black man getting the shit beat out of him on the street by police that they're like well he should have just complied when you get an old white lady literally finger the police off drives down and only gets tased and she walks away alive like how, how why why is that so hard for white people to see that's that's one of my big questions um so for me, I think my gut answer to that is like, because we were taught not to talk about race and you can't talk about racism without talking about race. <laughs> so like this thing that we're supposed to be able to talk about, we can't talk about. And, you know, Kerry Washington made this comment in an interview that just like, I, it was such a like, oh God, that's a bad moment for me, which is she said, think about the way that children are educated about black people in America. It begins with the slave trade. That's the, mm. it's, it's like the birth of black people in our minds is the slave trade, right? It's, it's, and so first of all, that sets up a beautiful story for nothing but progress, 
because you're not looking at like entire empires before it, right? You're not, you're not looking at what these lives were, but it also like just it, I mean, it, it kind of fundamentally defines black people as, as kind of their identity is wrapped up in like what white people have decided they deserve. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's like a perfect storm. Like we were taught, we were taught not to talk about it, which means that we were deprived of the language with which to talk about it. Um, and then if you start with, if you start with the slave trade, then of course it's hard to spot, like it's hard, it's hard to talk about implicit bias or it's hard to get the same like rage and horror about how deadly implicit bias can be if your comparison is the slave trade. Right, because it's not that bad anymore. So what are you complaining no. about? It's not right. that bad. Because we do this with like, it's as though there is no before the slave trade, right? right? There's, there is no whole, there's no whole black person independently of what white people decided they should have right. in, in the history of, you know, in, in the way we're taught history. And so I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to learn. What about you, Dave? Same question. Yeah, I think, um, so we mentioned Robin D'Angelo a minute, a minute ago. She just has a great illustration where, you know, a, a, a parent is pushing a child in the grocery cart and, uh, you know, the child says, hey, look, that, that man is black. And the mother goes, shh. And, and that's kind of like what Bryn's talking about. It's like I, I've, I've been in conversations where someone would say, oh, yeah, and she's black. You know, it's like we're not going to talk like about that um, as though that we're, we're really. Say what? Like it's a big secret. Yeah. yeah. And so it's a, I mean, it really is about erasure. I mean, it's about making it invisible. And, and I think once even even some sort of from the progressive side or the liberal side, it's like we're not going to talk about that because we're going to talk about people as individuals. And it's about the content of their character, not the color of their skin. You know, I'm going to use a, an MLK quote um, just to talk about how we we relate to people as individuals. And we're not supposed to see the systemic oppression that they've that they may have been under. Um, so it's like, I, I think it is, is this process of just making race invisible. So if I, if I make race invis invisible, then I don't have to talk about racism or racism is something that belongs to people who wear white sheets and, and wave Confederate flags. Josh. I mean, there's so many answers to this question. I'm, I'm just going to take two. The, the first is the way we have conceptualized race and gender in through diversity education is the biggest problem because we want very well established small bites of racism. So we're just black in February, we're just gay in October, right? And so like there's just one time of year and then you're never anything but that one thing. And so we have taught people how to talk about race and gender and sexuality in these little bite-sized down little chunks. And it doesn't work like that. Because to Bren's point, there is a there is a system in play. It's not really about the individual. It's about how the individual lives in the system. And what's happened because of that is that, and I really think that's the biggest problem, is that white folks are just lazy. Because when you grow up in a system that is constantly telling you you're right, if you find any kind of dilemma, it is such a shock to you that there's a dilemma because you have experienced no dilemmas before today. And so it makes, especially liberal white people are the worst. They are so lazy. Like they just wanna put a bumper sticker on a car. They wanna watch a Zoom meeting. 
They want to, I don't know, they just want to do something that will take like 20 minutes, donate to something, and then they're out. We're out. We're over here not being racist. I didn't say the N word today. Well, good for you, Stephen. Like, but what else have you been doing? And so I just think it's pure, unadulterated laziness that comes from the fact that we're told we're special little snowflakes in a system of white supremacy every single damn day. Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that's that's it. That's it right there. Um, and now I'm going to question out of order because the other another question I want to ask is. So like when we talk about racism, just like when we talk about white privilege, one of the things I don't like about these conversations is because when we talk about white privilege, like literally I think white people think it means, hey, I get to run into McDonald's and get in front of these black people. And I don't do that, so I don't have any white privilege. I'm like, that's a lie, sis, like you do. Like the fact that you're white, you come into this world with more than you have. So like, tell me some ways, and this is being transparent for you. I'm going to actually start with Margaret. I don't think I had you for this question, but I want to hear your, your point on this because you, you're, you're, you're the only person out here older than me. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so tell me about ways that you know that you benefit from, from, from racism that people don't want to, don't want to admit. Okay. The first thing that I thought when I read that question was number one, when my kids were teenagers and new drivers or in their twenties and, or now <laughs> I have two boys and a girl and I never once wondered whether they would get home, uh, whether they would not get home because they were shot by the police. I never thought about that. I mean, I thought about accidents. I thought about them getting arrested for speeding, but it never occurred to me to worry about an encounter with the police force would have them dead. And I know that that is a constant concern for black parents, constant. And I think that, I, I think that just must be exhausting, just exhausting every day. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is I know that I have benefited every day of my life. I registered to vote back when there was the literacy test. I was 21. The man ahead of me was black and he was older, you know, seemed older, <laughs> probably 35. Um, and he had to he had to talk about this section of the Constitution that was about this long. Right. And I don't know whether he got registered or not, but then it was my turn and I got like one sentence. What does this mean? And, you know, read it and say what it means. And I remember standing there thinking, this is so unfair. <laughs> this is so unfair. Right. Um, but I mean, I didn't do anything about it, but stand there and think that. Um, and in education, medical care, being able to go to a restaurant, even today, to be able to go to a restaurant and not be seated by the kitchen or not be overlooked for for being shown a table. Um, those things are so real. And so many white people just do not acknowledge that that kind of thing happens still today. Anyway, sorry, I get passionate about this. <laughs> That's great. Uh, Dave, Brian, one of y'all. Well, I, I think one of the things that um, so so some of this defensiveness about oh my my 
parents, grandparents didn't have privilege. And uh, I'm going to show you a picture of them in front of a 1920s rundown farmhouse. Um, I'm going to show pictures of white, white poverty, right? Which, which happened. But um, I'm not going to show from 1930 to 1970 when my grandparents and, and my parents got an FHA loan, which enabled them to get a house and build wealth. Um, I'm not going to show the, the fact that my, grand, my grandfather got the GI Bill and was able to go to college. And that changed. They were the first people to go to college in our family. So that kind of stuff happens, and we don't see that necessarily as, as privilege because it was a long time ago. But the fact is, 98% of those funds that, um, went to white people. So over the past, over the 20th century, all this wealth was built for white folks. We had, we had the biggest affirmative action program um, in, in history, but we're not going to see that as affirmative action. Um, and I think that's, that's a big source of, I mean, that's concrete privilege. Um, yeah, that's. Brian. Yeah. So I, I, when I thought about Margaret's answer about worrying about her kids and it occurred to me that when I started driving the thing, it's not necessarily that I was warned about, but like the kind of, um, fear as a young woman driving was being pulled over by a police officer at night and not knowing if you could trust that you were, that, that, that this was going to be a safe encounter. Right. Um, the, the solution, which I'm just now having this moment of like, Oh my God, the solution that was offered to you was to turn your hazards on, slow down and drive to a well-lit parking lot and until other police can arrive. Right. So the idea was that if you feel like you're threatened by police, the solution offered to me was to invite more police. Because the more police, the more police that are there, the safer this encounter will be for you. Right. And that that's just a steady message that I've gotten my whole life. Right. It would. And, you know, you you hear these things happen. So like uh, some some tragedy will happen and there will be. Well, why didn't they immediately call the police? <laughs> and it's like, well, you can only say that if you're not scared that the police will harm you. Right. Like that's it's it's such a huge and, and it's you know, it's hard. We, we have, we have one white daughter and one black daughter and it's, we try to like thread this needle of, you know, we, we, we want to be very honest that they're going to face very, very different situations when they grow up. Um, and it's, so it's, it's really strange on the, on the parent and the adult side to look back at all the things that like, we just get to assume on behalf of our white daughter that we have to go like, Oh, wait, wait, <laughs> Wait, wait, that's, that's really, um, you know, like to say some things that might seem small, but turn out not to be small because they affect children. Like, right. um, my child's not allowed to play with water guns ever. Any, there's no form of toy gun that she's allowed to play with. Um, and it's because like, you don't, I don't want to have to be figuring out, uh, when is it, when does it look too real? And when does she look older than, right? Like it's this kind of calculation um, that as a child, I never had to do ever. I, right. I was, I was never given any indication that the world was not safe for me. And in so far as, in so far as dangers were introduced to me, police and social systems were pointed to as things that would be helpful. Right. Yeah. We don't get that message. <laughs> I remember um, when Maurice first started going to Red Mountain, Dave's Dave son, Leo was there. And Maurice is literally the only like dark brown skinned boy at his school. And I'm comfortable with that because 
the other people at the school are like y'all. <laughs> so I don't I don't feel like my son is gonna be in danger. I actually got into it with Miss Dieter his first year because the kids had got into this fight. And you know, Melanie had like calmed it down and um and, and Mandy was like, you know, everything's fine, you know. And you know, be me, I, I went into old black parent mode. You know, my I went I started channeling my grandfather. I'm gonna talk about him in a second. But I started challenging my grandfather because when Maurice came home, I was like, Maurice, look, you are not going to go to that school and start bothering people. And Maurice is the sweetest kid in the world. He's not even a troublemaker for it. He was really just defending himself. And um, I'm like, when you go to school tomorrow, you apologize to Miss Dita because you're representing her class and you apologize to everybody that you offended. And me and Mandy were texting and she was like, he absolutely will not. Maurice doesn't have any more to um, blame for this than the rest of these kids. And I'm like, you know, I get that, but you know, the rest of those kids are white and Maurice is, good, is black. And there's a different set of rules for us than it is for these white kids. And she had went to see Brian Stevenson that night. She woke up the next morning and she sent me this wonderful note saying that, you know, she never thought about how I had to prepare my child differently, you know, than all the other kids at that school. Then, and, but she did say, she's, I just want you to know that I want Maurice's, like his life, his story to be honored. I want him to be heard. And I'm going to do what I can to make sure that life is comfortable here at school. But I know you have to do what you have to do at home. And, you know, that was like one of the sweetest things that anybody ever said to me. But it's something that white people don't think about. Like, y'all don't have to think about, you know, if I, push the police officer, I'm going to die. You know, they'll fight white. I've seen videos where officers fighting white people, like just slugging it out. But then a black person literally running away, you shoot them in the back and then there's an excuse for your actions. You know, and I can't think of anything that's more privileged than that. Uh, I'm going to try to show y'all this video. Um, this is from Freedom Fest. They might give me for copyright infringement, but this is uh, a story that I told about my grandfather, my 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 maternal grandfather, my mom's dad, and um, this story is kind of hurtful to me uh, because I had this idea about my grandfather that I found out wasn't true, and I only found this out in the last year. So I'm gonna try to do this uh, video real quick. Uh, here we go. And application window. Okay, it's gonna work. All right, so let me cue this up. Uh, I'm having trouble. Uh, okay, I should have practiced this beforehand. Okay, <laughs> uh, and it is not working. Well, it might be. I'm gonna have to play. There you go. Freedom means being able to be comfortable in your body and not to be afraid. Um, and I, I know it sounds but I mean, when you think about what freedom really is, it's about safety. You know, I think about my grandfather. Uh, for years, I thought my grandfather was a bit of a coward. He passed away now, but uh, when I was a kid, you know, we go into Fairfield from Dolomite, which is like going into town. And he'd go to these stores and these younger white men would crush him in James. And he'd go, how you doing, Mr. Willie? I'm good, James. I'm like, they told me to put a handle on my grandparents. They like, Mr. James, he's calling you Mr. Willie. I'm like, why is he letting these men speak to him in this way? 
And it wasn't until last year on my third trip to the EJR that we put Packers. And they say, why can't you flinched? And the one thing that got for me and made me rethink the way I thought of my, my grandfather was there was a man who was lynched for not addressing a police officer with Mr. And it, it, it broke me. You know, all these years I thought that my grandfather was being weak. He was trying to survive. You know, but as a child, all I saw was my grandfather being disrespected. You know, he, he's been dead now for about 15 years. I lost my grandfather. That's how I keep up with that. Um, but I wish I could tell him that I understand because I didn't understand all those years. But that that's that's the two systems that we have, you know, and we and we still have those, and and it's just it's just it's just really disheartening that that's what we still have to go through even today, you know, as black people in the in this country. Um, so my next question, uh, and this one is more for, well, this is for all y'all again. Just throw the script out the window. So. When you're around your racist uh, friends and relatives, like what's your go-to? Like what what is that like? Like how do you how do you navigate that space? Uh, I personally have gotten rid of friends and people who I knew were racist. I just can't be around them. I'm just not. I, and I'm not going to educate you. You have chosen to be a dumbass. I'm going to let you be a dumbass. So like, how do you react when you got a cousin or that elderly aunt who you know we all like Aunt Judy, but you know, and Judy, and Judy made her cat the N word and thought it was cute. Like, how do you deal with that? So, this is, I thought more about that question on the sheet than almost anything else, um, because it also gets to the like, what's white privilege like? Um, because I, I am not around them now. So, I block them on Facebook. I don't, I have, I have sort of a mandate that if other members of my family want to be around those people, they're welcome to, but they're not welcome to take my child with it. So like there's, there's, um, because one of the things that became very clear very quickly was that my child was like a get out of racism free pass. So like, well, I, I love Bryn's child. Bryn's child's wonderful. She's, there's never been a cuter child in the world, right? So, and it was like this perfect storm of like fetishization of black children and also, I mean, she is very cute, um, but, and, and people do it to me too, right? Like I'm extended just like at, at, as though I have no racist bias because I live with and love a black child. Like, so that, that clears it. It's all of a black child totally erases racism. Like you can't be racist and adopt a black child. Where are you from? Like, how do you get that? So, <laughs> um, and, and so it, it, the white privilege really strikes me because in the past, prior to my child's birth, I, could see that as like a quirk of their character, right? So you could see it as like, oh, that's just that uncle, or that's just da, 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 or like, you know, it's it's not uncommon for me to have said and for people to say about others, like, oh, they're really racist, super sweet, but really racist, right? As though there's no, as though those are like super easy to reconcile. Right. Um, and I didn't. Uh, so part of white privilege was that I was free to recognize that as like an interesting fact about their character that I could eye roll about, but didn't need to. But then once my child was born, it it was experienced by me as a threat to her safety. Mm. Um, and so now I just have like, I don't, I don't feel any obligation to like try to preserve relationships that with, with people I believe are threatening to my child. Like, 
I just, I don't have to do that. Um, but it, it is interesting. When I saw that question, I had this moment where I thought, oh, that's, that is interesting that like when it was just me and I wasn't thinking about race in this kind of up close and personal way, I got to just think of that as like an interesting fact about somebody. And now it, now it causes me fear in a way that it did for 30 years. It wouldn't have occurred to me to be afraid of that. Right. Uh, Josh. I mean, I feel like I'm in such a bubble in my life because I, you know, if there are those, I've weeded out those people, you know, like in my social media universe who were like super racist. And but I, you know, I, I don't have you're, a ton you're of white and gay, and white gay people can't be racist. So I know you don't run into any white gay racists because, you know, once you say you're one of the gays, automatically that gives you a free pass that you can't be racist anymore because that's what they think. Why is it that it feels like white gay people just like, like they get so close to, to seeing the connectivity and then they just dump truck right off the side? It's like, wow, like what just they happened? They found a black person put on the I mean, board yeah. and all of a sudden racism is undone, but nobody black knows the black person. So, you know. <laughs> If we're if we're talking biological family, like I don't really see my extended family much, so I don't have to deal with them. If we're talking family, all caps, gay people, family, it's the it's it's in the strangest places. It's on the apps where it says things like "no blacks, no Asians," as if like oh, and then you say, "Well, that's really racist," and someone goes, "It's not racist; it's just a preference." And it's like, so you've met every black person in the world, and you've ruled them all out. So you have been real busy, girl. Like you've been super busy. Your vetting process is intense. Acceptable. Like, what are you paying your private investigator that you ruled out all black people everywhere all the time? Or the things like the it's the it's the it, you're right. Like Bren's right. It's the subtlety of the interaction where people do feel like okay. So this one time I felt. I felt discriminated against. So now I completely understand, except you don't. And also you, it seems like you're working a part-time job to find ways to put racism into your regular life. <laughs> so I got, I got called in by a really good friend of mine who's a black trans activist one time. We were working on a project together and there was some guy in the group who was white and he just kept saying the most, I mean, just the most racist stuff, but like in the most coded language. And he just texted me and said, you need to talk to your cousin. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So like, I got called in off the bench to like walk in because it was like, I can't have one more conversation with a white person. And so I feel like that's, that's supposed to be the job of white folks, you know, allied against anti-racism, right? Is that you get called in off the bench by people of color to handle that weight because they just tried to go to the grocery store and experience 12 levels of racism. They don't have time for this idiot who can't see the commonality that could exist between people at the margins, but don't understand that your whiteness is what shows up first, Mary. Like, you came white. <laughs> we you got to the intersectionality of racism and marginalized identities too, but that's, that's really, really good. Margaret, what about you, love? <clears throat> well, the first thing I wrote was, I don't have any friends and family who are that racist. And then I thought, Margaret, do you hear yourself? And um, and I do have, um, I will say, I think most of my close associates now have, like I do, a more subtle, insidious racism. I've excluded 
I think pretty much all the people who are just adamantly, I'm not racist, but people, you know, those people. Um, What I try to do, I think, is um, I do try to educate white people to say, mainly to say, we don't know. We cannot imagine. Just like in my life, I was raised without a father at all. I mean, there were stories about him, but he wasn't present. Um, uh, But um, so nobody knows what that did to my life. And I don't want anybody judging me for stupidity I did because I didn't have a father. So it's not up to us to judge the reaction of black people for their blackness. And when they're treated differently and let's just face it badly because of their color. And that's the only reason Um, because sometimes people don't even get to know you well enough to dislike you individually. Right. (laughs) Mean that in an ugly way. Um, Although it may be ugly. I didn't mean it like that, but um, I really do try to educate and say, we don't know. We can't, imagine and yes you grew up poor but you weren't black and so you can't really judge from your poverty what it would be like even to be a middle class back black person you know i remember the story of a professor i think from texas who said you know my son is in graduate school at harvard and he has a state inheritance from both sides of his family. But if he gets stopped by the police, the only thing that's going to matter is that he's black. They're not going to ask how wealthy are you or how educated are you or who are your people? He's just yeah, gonna, what are you doing here, boy? And yeah, boy. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so that's, I really do try to educate and, and actually pray. Pray so, Yeah. Dave. Well, so um, I'm a I'm a pastor, so I'm around a lot of Christians, and Christians aren't racist because they love Jesus no. so much. Yeah. So, um, well, no. So, um, in terms of family and other contacts and other people around, I um, I had a I had a, an experience of several years ago of being on a jury, and someone was saying some some things that. Uh, that made me uncomfortable. And I had this kind of insight and it was just like, why should I be the one that's uncomfortable? Like, why, why can't I, I'll just make you uncomfortable. And, and I, and I think part of it was monitoring my own discomfort that allowed me to kind of make that shift. And, and it was just, it was kind of this liberating thing. I just started, I just started talking about what I really believed. And, um, and, and it it was interesting because there was this awkward silence and I just felt like, Oh, that was actually pretty successful. <laughs> like I just made, I made these people uncomfortable. Um, things like just saying, Oh, Oh, um, you know, if, if someone said something like if, uh, if, if people would comply, they wouldn't have problems with the police. And I would just say, oh, have you, have you ever smoked pot? Anyone in your family ever smoked pot? You know, that you're, you know, f- black people are four times more likely to be arrested than white people if they smoke pot, even though we do drugs at the same rate, you know, um, it helps that I've actually Maybe. never smoked pot, but I can say that to folks, you know, and say like, um, you know, 
in Huntsville, it's 11, you're 11 times more likely to be arrested if you're black than if you're white for, for marijuana possession. And, you know, that's not, that's not because black people are doing more drugs. It's because there's this systemic uh, racism problem. And so I, I find that, um, I, I find that being willing to make other people uncomfortable, you know, like they're, what they're doing is they're putting me in a position where I'm supposed to be uncomfortable. So let's just, let's just flip that around. And um, I, I don't mean that, that to make it sound like, oh, I'm this, you know, really powerful rhetorical social justice warrior or whatever, but, but I'm a pastor and there's some privilege that goes along with that because I can make people uncomfortable and get away with it sometimes. And part of that's also because I'm a white guy right. and I can do that. Um, yeah. I, um, I, I still remember last year at the conference we went to the UFC, you made a lot of white people uncomfortable <laughs> that day. And I lived for every moment of it. Um, and, but we do need people who are not afraid to stand up. Because, you know, right now, like we're literally actively list, living in an age of revisionist history, like not just re revisionist history from like the 1800s. But I'm talking about revisionist history from the lie you just told yesterday. Like five minutes ago, a lie was told and you're going to come back. Well, I didn't say that, you know, and it just makes it that much harder for us to get anywhere or for people to, to listen to us because for some reason, why, you know, they, you know, if, if you guys have never, um, listen to a podcast called uh, Seen on Radio by this guy named John Buin out of uh, Duke University. It's called Seeing White. And he literally talks about the invention of whiteness because when I say, when you say whiteness, it, that makes white people uncomfortable. Just saying, hey, white people, all of a sudden, white people get a little rabbit up the, the butt. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, hold on. You're putting us in a group and we're all individuals. You see it happening when um, a white man goes down 50 people at a damn concert and it, well, it was a long wolf. You know, had he been um, um, Asian or Middle Eastern, it's automatically a terrorist. You know, had he been black, he's automatically a thug. And all, all Middle Easterners and all black people are terrorists and thugs. But he was a white man, then, you know, he's just a lone wolf. You know, he may have been mentally disturbed, blah, 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 blah. And then you still manage to take him in and not kill him in the process. Like, that's some really deep shit. Like, it, it's just really, really. And, 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 it, and it's one of the things where at some point you have to realize that this is intentional and it's no longer accidental. When we were talking about the um, about the, when I was talking about the election earlier about me losing a lot of my white friends in 2008 and I got rid of the rest of them in 2012 and 16, you know, there was a friend of mine that was on Facebook and she had made this post talking about the agrarian South. Like, you know, the agrarian South was this place of Southern bells and gentlemen who tipped their heads. It was just such a wonderful place that people hate the flag. And I'm like, what about the slaves, bitch? Like, what about the slaves? Like, well, we're not going to talk about slavery. Like, you cannot talk about the antebellum South without talking about slavery. And people are like, well, you know, well, we didn't do that. But you benefit from that every day. Every day, white people benefit from that. And whether you messed up your privilege or not, you know, I, I you, that's like saying that because I'm white, I can't be homeless because my white privilege will protect me. No, you can squander your privilege. You could, you could be the prodigal son and squander all your privilege and end up homeless living under a, a, a bridge, just like anybody else can. But it's one of those things where you actually come into this world with so much more and somehow or another you manage to screw that up. 
Um, let's see what time it goes. Okay, so we got a couple more minutes. Um, I want to talk about marginalized identities because Josh and I talk about this all the time. Uh, and, and Brian, because you know, as a white woman, she can say that she's a minority because she's a woman. You know, as a white gay guy, Josh can say that he's a minority because you know he's gay, and and the gays ain't racist. Ooh, child. Um, but I came up with this thing last year about marginalized identities, and this was in uh, response to the Angela Davis uh, screw up at the BCRI that I'm still pissed off about. You know, um, Jewish people in this country identify as white. And even though you're saying you're a minority because you're, you're Jewish, you still run around this country as white. And so, so like when people have a marginalized identity that intersects with whiteness, they're minorities when it's convenient, but they're white all the time. And they benefit from this whiteness that they, that the white gay people who I have the biggest problem with are the ones that think, well, I know how you feel. Get out of my face. You don't know how I feel. You know, you never experienced this because if you were to just be quiet and not drop, you know, rainbows and skittles when you walk past, nobody's going to know you're gay. I can't just stay still and keep my mouth shut if somebody thinks that I'm not black. I'm black in the morning, I'm black in the noonday, and I'm black when I go to bed. But at the end of the day, you know, whiteness is going, it, it, it still wins. So Josh, so tell me about the, tell me about your experience with the intersectionality of being gay and being white and how that makes racism look to you. Cause your friends don't really understand this. I think that it's so difficult for, it's so difficult for people that have even like an adjacently at risk identity to see themselves as part of the problem. And so you're right. Like when when you think of yours, I think when when LGBTQ people think of themselves primarily through a lens of gender and sexuality, it's it's our primary thought. Right. And so we're thinking, oh, well, this is my primary identity. And so that's how I walk into rooms without taking into consideration that every room I walk into, I walk into as a white man. So I'm hearing myself in my head say, but you're queer, but you're queer. But I walk into rooms as white folks. And so it's really hard for people because we have decided that you know, even like an adjacently theoretical minority identity that you may or may not have that doesn't always show up somehow gives you right of access into all these levels. <laughs> so that's why intersectionality is so important. And the most difficult conversations I ever have are with white gay men, because it's, there is a difference. I mean, I mean, it is so stark now. I think it's, it's always been stark, but it's so stark now I had a conversation one time when I was invited to a dinner party with a bunch of white gay folks. They were living in a very tall, very wealthy building with a doorman on it. And they were sitting around the table talking about how they had been discriminated against every day and discrimination. And I kind of made a face and someone goes, do you not agree? And I said, I think you've misunderstood the difference between discrimination and slightly inconvenienced that one time, because that's, that's what you're talking about. Like, and, I mean, can you experience violence as a gay person? Of course you can. But to Bren's earlier point, like if I get pulled over by the police, I don't imagine I'm going to be murdered by the police. Right. Like, so that puts me in a position to, to be able to at least do enough work to situate myself to go, you know what? I, I have felt discriminated against, but I don't understand this. So help me understand it. As opposed to what happens now is, which everyone comes with their hands out and they want something. And then they're just constantly blind to the fact that they can't they can't realize that they're white before they're gay when they walk into spaces. 
And it's really hard. Like gay white people don't want to see it. They just don't, which is a shame too, because when the partnerships are there between queer people of color and white gay people, like there can, some real work can happen in those spaces. When you leverage your privilege in positions to assist people in your community, but not in a deficit way, not in that like the help sort of white privilege way. <laughs> right? So it's just hard to talk to white gay people about it. You know, I I tell people, I, one of the things I said about white privilege for, for, for my white friends is, I don't necessarily want you to give your privilege up because it shit could come in handy, but just use it for good. Like use it to elevate someone else instead of just being greedy with it all the time. You know, and 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 you know, until it goes away, use it for good. But the white gays don't know how to use their white privilege for good. They are all trying to like check a box. So I got a black friend, so I'm not racist. So yeah. well, Brian, let's talk white feminism. We're the best. <laughs> Come on, Karen. Um, we're the best. By the way, just as a quick thing, Jake, you know you can call me Bryn now, right? That's, anyway, um, <laughs> just as a fun fact. Um, so, yeah, this is, um, it's the, one of my favorite ways to think about this. So the, the place that I feel the, that I, that I fail the most, I think, is in my discipline. So my discipline takes a lot of heat, rightly so. I'm, I'm a philosopher, and it takes a lot of heat, rightly so, for being overwhelmingly white men. Just like it's it's worse than almost any other discipline in the academy. I think we might we might be beat by physics, but I think we might actually be worse than physics. Like we're it's it's terrible. And so there is there is a lot of like active discrimination in the field, and there's a big push to include more women, and I, and I think that's great, and I'm passionate about it. And I will I will go long stretches of time without having the moment where I'm like, oh, there's way more women than there are black people in philosophy. There's what like, which isn't to say we shouldn't be fighting for more women, but it's like, that's still the, fo like, that's, that's the voice that's missing from philosophy, even though when women enter the field, not, not all of them, but certainly me, right? I'm trained in the same white male Western analytic mode. I don't, I don't bring a particularly different perspective to philosophy. I bring a different perspective to meetings because I'm a mom and I have all these kind of gendered concerns there, but like philosophically, I'm not offering any meaningful diversity to the discipline, right? I just, but I'm a point for being a woman. Um, but I will say, I think that uh, I encourage everybody. Questlove has this great piece on riding in an elevator with a white woman <laughs> and it's in his apartment building. And so it's an apartment building with lots of security. He's very famous. <laughs> this is, it's Questlove. Um, and he realizes in this moment that she doesn't want to tell him what floor, he's going to push the button, but she doesn't want to say what floor she's on. Um, and it's such a beautiful piece because it captures this kind of shared experience that you're always having to think about your safety, right? You're, you're, and, and he's, he's, he, he has this moment where he's like, okay, so both women and black people are always having to do this, right? They're, they're always having to like eyes out what's going on. What are the possible dangers? How do I carry myself? But it's also pointing out that like, but her fear is a big part of why he has to do that. Like the causal arrow goes in the, in, in that direction, right? Like her fear is why he has to shrink himself. Her fear is why he can't get out of his car if there's only one other person in the parking garage. He has to wait until the parking garage is empty so that nobody's afraid, you know? Um, and I, yeah, I, I, I think about that a lot because I, I do worry about gender discrimination a lot. Um, and especially with our daughters, we, we worry about this a lot, but, um, but yeah, if, if, 
if it's it is interesting to have two children in this in this moment because I think I am worried about them being girls, but I'm much more worried about my black daughter than I am about my white daughter. Yeah. Right. Okay. So look, so we got about uh, eight minutes before we're done with this hour. I really want to do this again. Uh, this has been great. I want to share my screen again, and I'm gonna show you an image. And for me, uh, this image is just personifies what racism and white privilege looks like in uh, in this country. It may be a little difficult. It's not violent, but it's really cringeworthy uh, for you to look at. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna put it on the screen for a couple minutes, well, a couple seconds, maybe like thirty seconds or so, and then I want to talk about this picture and the problematic. Hold on, uh, the problematic. Um, Bull crap that it is. Hold on. So this image right here, you got white guy heavily armed, arrested. You got people that that we know now, unarmed, murdered. Heavily armed, cop killer, arrested. Unarmed, murdered. Heavily he, heavily armed, arrested. Unarmed, murdered. Heavily armed, arrested, and taken the fucking Burger King, <laughs> but arrested alive. You know. All these people that you see that are unarmed and murdered are all black. So when I hear white people talking about, or even y'all stupid president talking about, you know, there's no problem with race in America. What else could you say that that is? Like, and as and we're gonna kind of segue out of this, but you know, I want y'all to talk about that about maybe two minutes, and and we can back on that. But Margaret, I'm gonna start with you. Tell me what you think about when you see that. Oh, wait a minute, I got you muted. Hold on. There you go. Um, it makes me absolutely sick um, and angry. And I want to shake white people and say, look at this. Could it be more clear? Could it be more clear? How can you not see this? Get your head out of the sand and pay okay. attention. I mean, I think it's I think it's depressing because we have such short memories. I mean, we literally had a video of someone being lynched. It was on television. And that's and you can't you do not see the connectivity. You want to defend police police officers like that disconnect is what is so disheartening because, you know, Medgar Evers wasn't 100 years ago. I mean, historically, it was so it was so short a time ago. And so it's, it's just so depressing how little we can remember, even from our own in, in the recent you know, 50 years. Right. Dave? Well, I think one of the things that I find disturbing about that is when I see the pictures of the white guys is that is a standard white guy fantasy is mm. having is is I mean, the. The idea of the um, sort of John Wayne Western, I'm defending my family. I'm a good guy with a gun. The reason I get a gun is because I'm a good guy with a gun. And this this notion that the world is split into good guys and bad guys with guns. It's you know, you get you get two quote good guys with guns, they both think they're good, and someone and and what we know psychologically is if you have a gun, you are less likely to back down from something. So if you have an, if you're in an argument, you're gonna escalate. And and so this notion that that I'm I'm the hero of the film I'm the guy I'm John Wick I'm you know whatever, um, and and not realizing that that extends into into this matrix of of racial difference, um, such that uh, I I I can I can take an action 
and consider myself fully justified in it because I'm a good guy with a gun. Um, and I think that's part of the blindness that happens. Um, anyway, I just, I think it's, I think it's important to note that all the white guys in that, in that frame, all of them are raised on that white guy, John Wayne fantasy. Brilliant. So I, you know, the, the philosopher in me like wants to push society for consistency. So I've said this to you before, right? I see pictures like that and I think, where, where are the don't tread on me folks? Like these, these people were literally tread on. Where are you? Where are you rising up um, in protest? Um, the, the human when, in me. When it comes to mask, they come out when it comes to mask and wearing them to prevent, prevent people from coronavirus. Yeah. The, the, hu the human in me um, panics when I see a picture like that because I think, um, and Tony and I have talked a lot about this, right? There's so much you do to try to teach your kid, not because you think your kid is responsible for this not happening to them, but there's so much you do to try to reduce the odds that this will happen to your kid. And then you see images like that and you see, you know, Brianna, you, you, there's, there is no escaping the fact that like you can't make your kid white and so you can't stop this from happening. Like, there's, there's nothing you can do to prevent this from happening unless we all uh, get it, get it together very quickly. And and I'm not optimistic that we're going to. So it's, that's hard. Yeah. At, at our current state of affairs, I don't see any of this getting better. My uh, friend Bo uh, said that he agrees. He said he, do, he just doesn't get into elevators with white women because he's afraid of what may happen to him because of her fear of him. Like, you know, walking down the street as a black man and, you know, you get white women clutching their purse, and like I started clutching my wallet when I walk past white women. I just, I could do it too, sis. You know, it's just one of those things where you know, and, and people have been taught this. I mean, they have been taught this for years, and 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 there doesn't seem to be like any end in sight. I mean, especially now. Uh, I, I really want to thank each of you for your vulnerability, for your your ability to trust me as your friend to um, to participate in this. This has been a great discussion. I want to do more. If y'all have anything in the comments, that I really want to do more on, on race. Uh, I want to talk about race and religion. I want to talk about race and education. And go ahead, Margaret. You got something to say? Hold on one second. Uh, let me unmute you. There you go. I wanted to reflect back to what Bryn said about the loss to white people of knowing black culture and knowing black people and the richness that comes into your life when you open yourself to genuine friendships. That was, that's really important. I think. Dave always says that, you know, racism hurts black people, but it hurts white people more. And go ahead. No, no, not more. Okay, not more. Not more. Okay. I, I don't. It hurts black people. It hurts black people worst, but it hurts white people okay, first. There you go. Okay. And, I, and I didn't, and I didn't come up with that. Someone else. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, but it and it does, and you know, and hopefully, you know, we can get y'all talking to your aunties and cousins and uncles and get them on board. But uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. We have to do it again. But like, I do want to talk about more intersectional co uh, conversations, uh, religion, because we know Christians are racist. <laughs> you know, not in red state, Alabama, red Jesus, Alabama. Um, but yeah, that's it for tonight, y'all. Thank you. Thanks to um, LGBTQ Detroit. You guys are great. Uh, hopefully we'll be back on the brother and brother uh, uh, scene soon. Um, Birmingham Black Pride, my org. Thank you guys for your support. Hey, Ma, I know you're still looking, watching. I love you. 
Uh, and we're going to go ahead and just take this on out. So y'all be cool and watch out for letting me say this and also saying it's a different day. Y'all be good.